Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to After the Deluge. I am Justin Cox. The People's Key was released on February 15th, 2011 and is Bright Eyes' ninth studio album. That's... Ober's birthday, by the way. It debuted at number 13 on the Billboard 200, and it made it to number 7 on the Alternative Albums chart. It arrived four years after its predecessor, Casadega. Pitchfork gave the people's key a 5.0. The review was written by David Bevan, or Bevan, not sure. And we're going to jump in at paragraph 2. It's easy to forget that before Ober's lyrical abracadabra on 2002's Lifted garnered new Dylan Hosannas, the Bright Eyes brand got its first bit of traction amongst emo kids. Leagues of them. Oberst was a pinup. His hair always swept perfectly across his sad, massive milk dud eyes, fit to erupt in small rooms like those in which he first recorded. In the years that followed Lifted's release, he left behind his handcrafted attic pop leanings to fully embrace American roots music. That trajectory reached a pivotal point in 2007's Casadega, a cinematic, string embossed epic that found Oberst in all those modes at once, engaging even further with themes of both mystic and apocalyptic. Despite its flaws, the record seemed the loudest expression of what Bright Eyes had seemingly always been about, articulating the world's many weights as he meant to carry them around. The People's Key, its sci-fi successor, breaks from the narrative. It doesn't articulate much at all. I'm sharing pieces of this review without much other context or commentary because we talk a lot about all of this stuff in our main conversation and in a piece I'll share with you in just a second. But I did want to give a sense of kind of the conversation that was happening around it when it came out in 2011. It's as well assembled and produced a set of songs as you'd expect from pros like these guys, but unfortunately, much of it tends to ring empty. What's missing is Oberst. To that point, the writer is not wrong. This isn't Oberst wailing alone in a corner. Um, It's a group of people, 10, 15 years on in their career, collaborating on something and it does feel like a new chapter for this artist and this group, but whether that's a bad thing or a good thing is an open question. Like, do we want 45-year-old Connor Oberst alone in the corner with his hair swooped in front of his milk dud eyes? I don't think I do. And the last bit, every line is laid with the rich sense of rhythm and texture that he's mastered over the years, but it still adds up to very little. A wildly spiritual record without any spirit. I'm going to introduce my guest in just a second, but before that, I think the perfect response to that Pitchfork review is a short piece by Dominic Ronzani, who is a Patreon supporter of this show, who commented on something a little while back saying, I think we said something along the lines of like, the people's key is not anybody's favorite Bright Eyes record. And I think he commented something like, it is I, the guy who says people's key is his favorite Bright Eyes record. And so I wanted to hear from him about why. And so he has just this couple minute um, explanation of that. So here's Dominic on why The People's Key is his favorite Bright Eyes record. I think that for those of us who got into Bright Eyes in adolescence or early adulthood, uh, listening and singing along to those early records was a deeply cathartic experience. And the lyrics really captured the height and way that you experience life when you're young. 
Um, but as I near my 40th birthday, I, I don't experience those early records in the same way that I once did. Um, it's more of a reflective experience listening to them today. I, I still enjoy them a lot because I think ultimately they're the product of an incredibly gifted writer of melodies and a dynamic performer, but they just don't punch me in the gut like they used to. Um, and I think the hard-on-sleeve nature of the lyrics that made me feel connected to this person in the past now make the listening experience more of a static one. I don't feel like I'm discovering anything new in those older songs when I listen to them today. They're more like these incredible artifacts that I love taking out from time to time. Uh, the reason I call The People's Key my favorite Bright Eyes record is because unlike those early records, I still think of it as this living, breathing, dynamic part of my life. I wouldn't say it's the, the best collection of Bright Eyes songs, though there are a couple, specifically Shell Games and Ladder Song, that I think stand alongside the best stuff he's ever done. But I think what makes it great is not that it's a bunch of great songs in one place. What makes it great is that there's a universality to its themes that won't ever lock it into a, a time in one's life or a period in history. Um, I think if there's one overarching theme in this record, it's how the natural state of connectedness and community in human beings is subverted by the unnatural way in which the world is ordered. You repeatedly see the connectedness in lyrics like uh, like I and I, sharing in the load, we form some kind of code, and then later on more explicitly when he says you're not alone in anything. And you see the unraveling of that connectedness in moments like the, the quinceanera uh, being shot up in approximate sunlight or in an innocent child becoming the next Caesar in Haile Selassie. Um, and Connor's anger, you know, for the everyman who's trying to navigate this soulless world is directed at the architect who imagined it. In a beginner's mind, he pleads with the part of himself that's held on to some innocence to hold on tight and to do the opposite of all those stilted hypocrites who try to pull and pry uh, you away from your natural self. And uh, for much of the album, he's trying to find alternatives to and escapes from this world in various religions or science fiction or people who turned out to be charlatans. But um, ultimately, he's finding that he you know, just bought a mantra and that freedom is imaginary. Um, I don't know if Connor would say this explicitly, but to me it sounds like he's describing the dehumanizing and alienating effects of capitalism uh, that capitalism has on us as individuals and as people. Um, our natural state is to live and work together and toward, you know, work together towards common causes, one for you, one for me, not to compete for resources and live billions of separate, isolated lives disconnected from one another. But this is, you know, sort of unfortunately the world we live in, and it's difficult to imagine that changing anytime soon. And uh, so I think as long as we're out here just humping meaningless desk jobs or driving Ubers or just generally spending half of our precious sentient years making rich people richer, this album will remain relevant to me because this album's about the, the struggle against that and trying to, to hold on to, you know, uh, connectedness and, and, and innocence and, and not being twisted uh, by, by these uh, outside forces. Um, and, uh, you know, as long as uh, we're struggling to find meaning and purpose beyond simply keeping our, ourselves alive, this album will be relevant. And that's why I love it. That's why I'll always love it. And so uh, I just wanted to thank you, uh, Justin, for allowing me to do this. And it's uh, it's been super rewarding diving back into this album and uh, organizing some thoughts on it. Thanks. Thanks to Dominic for that. And thanks to Dominic for supporting the creation of the show more broadly. Our guest today is Ben Dolnick. Ben is the author of four novels, and his writing has appeared in the New York Times, GQ, NPR, and more. We start this conversation with a piece he wrote for The All, that's A-W-L, 
a small but beloved website from the early 2010s about news, ideas, and obscure internet minutiae. I loved the website. Um, in Ben's essay, which he published in the lead-up to The People's Key, he explores thoughts and feelings around taste and shame. He's contemplating what it means to love this music as he enters his 30s. I think there are certain people who don't think twice about this stuff, but I'm not one of them. Um, I make a point to try to just like what I like and love what I love. And I think I have pretty fine taste in music and other things. But I know I'm not immune to the part where I think about what liking something means outwardly. And I think Bright Eyes is a particularly good example. What does it mean to like the trembly 19-year-old emo singer as you get older, you know? And as he's getting older at the same time. First half is about that, and the second part, it's the record. Here's my conversation with Ben Dolnick about taste, shame, aging with the music you grew up on, and the 2011 Bright Eyes record, The People's Key. But can't come that heavy love, you never gonna move it along. great how are you also great um excited to talk to you because this was a funny one what i'll say right at the outset is we're securely reaching the part of the the podcast where i don't like deeply deeply intimately know these songs in the way that i really do on some of these other albums i mean i fully aware and everything but i'm kind of like revisiting in a way that's less about something that was like straight up defining a period of my life you know and so over the summer, I took I took a trip to Portugal with my wife and was on a trolley and like at some point checked cell phones and, and I had a message from you I, or you, you can correct me if I, it's such a daze. It's such a blur to me. But I remember yeah. messaging you on, I guess, a Reddit DM or something like that <laughs> about this piece and about the podcast. And you'd sent a really cool note about it. Is that is, yeah, is that yeah, what that, we did? That totally accords. Yeah. Somewhere deep in the Reddit bowels of Conoroburst fandom, we hooked up. I love it. And so what this piece is, is uh, this is just part of the title, but taste has never met shame. And kind of what I want to say to you, that's the the reason that your piece resonated to me. And it, it was written in the all like about 2010 or 11 when this record was on its way. We, we had a release date and it was coming. Kind of, I don't, what, what would you say is kind of the, the kind of basics of that piece? What, are you, what were you trying to articulate in that? So at that time, I was 29, 30, something like that. And I was fully grappling with a thing that had been sort of somewhere in the periphery of my Bright Eyes fandom since the very beginning, which was like when I was 19, I think, I, I had a my brother's friend um, who was just like always the like cool music viaduct for me. Like he, you know, I thought like Weezer was indie and he would like introduce me to, you know, Joanna Newsom or whatever. Like he just really Sweet. was tapped into that at a different level. And he, in like a full um, like garden state kind of moment, was just like, you have to hear this and like put on something vague for me, which I'd never heard of Conor Roberts before. And just like within 20 seconds of it, I was just like, oh, this is going to be a problem. You know, like there's just something in the quality of his voice or the song or something that just like was a puzzle piece in my brain and body for me. Now and again, it seems worse than it is. But even from then, I was always aware that there was something 
a tiny bit like you know it wasn't like lighting pavement or something like it it rubbed some people the wrong way there was something a tiny bit not cool about it and there was a feeling sort of a fear of mine that i was going to outgrow it because i loved his music so much but i had this sense when i was like going to a lot of shows of his and stuff like how am i going to be relating to like halai halai or whatever when i'm 25 like what is that going to sound like so by this point which is like 2010 or 11 when the people's key was incoming i felt no longer young for like you know i was approaching 30 and so it felt like i was officially kind of aging out of the acceptable bright eyes demographic in my mind and yet i was super excited about this album and so the piece i just wanted to write about not succumbing to that not not pretending to like different stuff than i did in fact like like connor oberst i knew was embarrassing and even even within the arts like it's not like he's the most sophisticated musician in the world like i've gone through so many phases in my life of wishing i like liked classical music like wouldn't it be cool to like be somebody who is conversant in that and so this piece was to some extent just like making peace with like i'm not like that like this is what moves me and this is what i love and deal with it are you the type of person to work out your feelings by writing them out and kind of this is like you you exercising that process Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's feel it feels that way to me. I mean, what you're doing basically is saying like you're you're kind of contrasting taste with the things that you can kind of carefully choose to be like the signifiers of you versus what is just making things happen inside you, right? Yeah, there's. I, I read a really good phrase um, in an essay once where a guy said he was talking about books. He said there are no placebo books if this like Dostoevsky book that you wish meant a ton to you, you can't just like take it in and like have it fake. Like if, if it, it hits or it doesn't, you know, and you don't get to choose. And, and I don't think there's placebo art. Like it's, it's about the effect it has on you more than it is about how cool people think it is when they see what you're listening to. It's actually pretty cool to talk about this right now at this time of year as well, because I'll read through like websites, year end lists of like bands and albums and things like that. And, and you can like, and I probably, I know I do it myself. Like if you look at like what I listened to the most of this year versus what I say would be my favorite thing. Like I'm sitting here deep in my head, like, <laughs> is it really, or is this what I want to be perceived as what is my favorite thing? I, I don't, For sure. yeah. like we're all, we're all doing versions of that all the time. And um, yeah, you have like one eye on the mirror at all times uh, when you're sort of composing the taste that, that make up you. And it's, yeah, it's a very self-conscious, uncomfortable process, I think. Yeah. What you have here, you have our sense of taste couldn't care less about our creatively plotted visions for ourselves, which I love. But I think there's, all right. So we're talking about this as like, oh my God, we just have to just be real with ourselves that we like this extremely, uh, I don't know, embarrassing thing but here's here's the thing that's a conversation you can have that's me like speaking hyperbolically but it's kind of the way we're talking right now about like this is like this is some pure embarrassing thing but the reality is there's a second yeah. thing happening which is it's a, it's not you know it, yeah, yeah. it's no, very it's good so so it's and and the thing i like about your 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 piece which the reason it resonated so much, I think for me is like, I was early in the process of making this podcast, like just thanking fucking God that Tim Kasher came on the first episode of this show and just really excited about it. And, and what, what I was kind of like unlocking in my head was like a major kind of 
purpose of this. A major kind of reason is to do the job of explaining that, you know, do the job of getting at why this is not that. And, and like, I honestly, in the, in the yeah. podcast, I make a point not to refer to him as Connor. I make a point not to, I'm like so averse to becoming like in like fanboy voice of it or whatever. It's almost like, yeah. I'm going to say what I like and criticize what I don't and say what I liked then and feels weird now. And honestly, all that's all that process is like, how do you go about this in a way that like, hopefully unlock some of the reasons this is more than just whatever like um hair swooped in front of the face emo thing was yeah. happening at the very beginning yeah that's just, a great point like i don't i don't want at all to sound like i relate or ever related to connor oberst as like you know my i don't i don't i wouldn't know any one direction songs but like my embarrassing like you know teenage thing that i know is crap i actually think connor oberst is amazing and like i will go to the mat arguing that and and do but it's it's complicated like i I think i I was thinking about like i will often read like critics saying that like you know buster keaton was actually a genius or charlie chaplin like go back and watch these old movies and so sometimes i will try to engage with some old thing that was like not taken seriously in its time but now people are saying you should take it seriously and I usually don't enjoy it that much. Like within 10 minutes, I'm a little bored and confused and I forget it. And I think the actual message of those like arguments is that it's okay to take seriously what seems like pure um, ephemera or not quite heavy art now, you know, like Will Ferrell might be Buster Keaton in a hundred years. <laughs> and I think it's perfectly likely that Connor Oberst, I mean, I know saying Bob Dylan is like an excruciatingly overdone thing. And I don't even know Bob Dylan that well, but just like, this is what it feels like to be living at the same time that I think an artist who is going to last is going, is making his music. And, and it is this weird dynamic of like recognizing his flaws, rec- cringing occasionally and knowing somehow that he just like has something like he, he does. Like yeah, I, yeah. I took, I took, um, piano lessons for a long time um as an adult with like a very serious jazz musician and like i would bring him stuff that i wanted to learn on the piano and a lot of the stuff i brought like i would you know whatever ben queller or like wilco or whatever and i would play it for him and he would kind of like dutifully figure out what chords it was and teach me and i brought him bright eyes and i was like a little nervous about it because you know he's not a great technical musician i don't like he can't read music i don't think right and I played it for him. And to my like delight, he was like, oh shit, that kid's got something. Like there is something yeah. there that is more valuable than any amount of musical education or whatever. So yeah, I don't want to downplay that at all. I don't think, I, I I know that like, we're not downplaying it. Obviously we're on this talking about that, talking <laughs> about it in this conversation, but I think it's some awareness of, of a perception being this, like, oh, you're they have this festival in Las Vegas called when we were young with a bunch of emo bands and bright eyes is at, is at it. And I think what it was, was like a, a thing back in the moment when that was happening of being, I mean, I was into like singer songwriter music and lyrics. I'm 17 years old and loving Jackson Brown and shit. And that, I think it was my sort of like, I don't, you guys, I don't think you guys get it. This is different thing than that. <laughs> like I, 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 I either have neutral to negative feelings about whatever the word emo means. I really just I don't know, really, really don't understand it. But in the moment it was just like, I think I'm liking this for a completely different reason. And 
um, I don't remember if it was the pitchfork review or your piece that, that kind of talked about, like once you hit lifted, you kind of see that other thing. And then by the time you're past that, it, it it's totally divorced from um, whatever connection it had to that kind of scene prior to it. But we're going to find our way and we'll, we, we'll keep talking about this stuff as we, as we go into people's key. But do you care if I read a little bit of your thing back to you? No, do it. Okay. Years from now, when I'm wandering through life bald and LL Bean jacketed, I'll probably still be listening to him tremendously describing his beloved high school girlfriend com- combing her hair. And I'll probably still be ashamed and covered with goosebumps. But why the shame? And come to think of it, why the goosebumps? Beautiful. I <laughs> love that. And then before, before we jump back in, the long version would include defensive references to Elliot Smith and Bob Dylan, as well as an anxious discussion of his surprising way with lyrics, his his disarming voice, his shockingly steady output, um, and a dozen other things. The shorter and more honest version, though, would amount to not much more than play light pollution starting at 210, which is which is awesome sounding like uh, you're channeling like the big sister on the Zoe Deschanel character on Almost Famous, <laughs> like about like side two of Led Zeppelin record or whatever. But it's right. I, I, the part the part where you say I know it's like no one wants to bring up Elliot Smith and Bob Dylan stuff like that. But the part where you say that in a way that's like kind of defensively saying like, no, nah, this is this is a of that thing, it just resonates with me a ton. But like, why does that? Why does it have to be said defensively? Um, I think that says something about whatever whether it's the perception of bright eyes or the perception of aging white guys feelings about what the perception of bright eyes is or something like that. It's all a bunch yeah. of overthinking. And and the thing I like about what you're about this, the piece and the, and honestly what I'm getting to do here is like cutting, cutting that away, you know? Yeah, no, it definitely becomes very involuted. Um, and I, I think there is a distinction. I mean, I don't know about Bob Dylan, but like whenever I think about Elliot Smith, as he relates to Connor Oberst, it feels a little bit like, you know, driving next to a Tesla and you're in kind of like a tape together golf cart or something. Like, I feel like Elliot Smith is like really clearly very musically talented yeah, and like yeah. the production, you know, the way the vocals are doubled and he's just like a beautiful singer. It's just like, like I could play those songs for my parents and I think they would get it. Um, but Bright Eyes has this much more homemade, like I was thinking about how if you had like two fader knobs on like a whatever mixing board, you know, and like they are labeled, let's say like, I don't know, sincerity and like professionalism, right? So like collection of songs is like sincerity is all the way up and professionalism <laughs> is all the way down, right? Like that's just pure feeling that yeah. is barely making its way onto tape. And it's awesome. And then over the course of his career, I feel like he's kind of pulling those things a little bit closer together. But what was so amazing, what is so amazing about him, I think, is that he has the sincerity thing. Like he brought in a lot more of that than it seemed to me that like a song could really carry. Right. Like there, I, I had never known that much raw feeling to be brought into music. And yet he still had this ability to like, write a hook and a melody and like these things that you really wanted to. Yeah. And make that sincere thing artful and interesting. You know, you're talking yeah. about something vague. Like it's not just him saying something sincere. It's him be, being like, wait, the way in which it's being said 
but but that honestly yeah. you can kind of distill down some of the the simple stuff we're talking about to the fact that it is sincere you know like you 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 brought up pavement a, a minute ago like that's like tossed off cool and in, not sincere and and sort of cool in cool in being the opposite of that you know and and this was pretty sincere and hard on sleeve and um i mean i, I saw pavement like a few years ago they were doing one of their like reunion things and it was so depressing like it was not only because of like how they've aged but just like that lack of when a lack of sincerity is kind of your whole thing that you're like a little bit above everything like that ages really poorly like it's just like you're standing there playing someone else's music almost like there's this really detached depressing feeling that felt like everybody in the crowd was super detached from it and then I saw Bright Eyes, you know, a month or two ago. And it was one of the better shows on this tour. And it was just so in it. Like, like I, I, one of the things I love so much about him is that he doesn't, um, maybe to his detriment, like bullshit in his music. Like he, he doesn't play old songs well unless he can somehow twist them and make them new. Like he, he refuses to fake his way through stuff and, and i think it is probably like a very painful way to go through the world to have to like feel everything so deeply as you're doing it but it's delightful as an audience member yeah every single one of those records through the 2000s round a new corner you know including the two that come out on the same day they're just like it's all it's all still bright eyes but it all is deliberately changing in a way that's like kind of almost at every turn telling the audience who loves your music like kind of challenging them to not like it a little bit and yeah. I, I think into varying to very we're at a part like i i you your your piece is largely about like thinking about all of that kind of stuff and about what taste is and what and and liking what you want to like and and kind of navigating that whole conversation in anticipation of this record i i i'm thinking about where i am i was broke and just out of journalism school and living in San Francisco and that when this would have come out. And I, so I think I was a little preoccupied. It was a weird time in my life, but I was not waiting for it. I, I don't even no, know. I, and I, and I think that I, 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 in retrospect, like I talk a lot on the Casadega episode about kind of like the challenge I had with that. And I kind of never fully getting there all the way. This is like an extra little burn to that, to the way that record felt for me that I went from buying that one the day it came out to not even really following the release of this one. Yeah. I mean, I think that is actually a really significant trajectory. Like I feel, I feel like this is the album, you know, this is the, what year did he put out Casa de 2006 or seven, 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 seven. Seven. So I feel like that interval between 2007 and 2011 is like when bright eyes outlived its kind of legend. I don't know exactly what age he was in there. He's a couple years older than me, but like, I feel like that was the first Bright Eyes album to come out when he had to kind of figure out what it means to officially be someone who like didn't die young, you know, like who is going to continue to put out albums as he ages and become, and how, and that is what I really like about the album and find interesting about it actually, is that it's like, in a way, the first posthumous bright eyes record which doesn't make any sense but like he didn't die obviously in that interlude but the young connor oberst who we all know from like 2000 to 2005 i feel like 
did die kind of in that period. And so there's something very like brave and interesting is, you know, I feel like his grappling with, is he going to become like self karaoke the early records on this, or can he find some way to continue to change? What does it even mean to be like angsty and stuff as you are in your thirties? And so I just find it a fascinating record. And I think what your experience of like going from ardently standing outside the record store to like, Oh wait, there's a new bright eyes album. You could kind of feel in yeah. the cultural air in that period. Yeah, totally. Well, what's what's cool about it and what's cool about being able to size it up from a distance is like I listened to it over these last few days and and a couple weeks ago and kind of like little waves of it and I love it. Like I really really like the record a lot and I I say that in a way that's like I think I don't have to tangle with any past relationships with it, any other feelings <laughs> about it or anything. It kind of it kind of carries no baggage whatsoever. And like listening to it with with um your all piece in mind like it it's kind of nice to have him not be uh bearing it all out as a 30 something year old that's just going to be doing that same thing all the time like it would it feels like the thing i i would like to hear at the at the age that i am and it's like it feels like okay you make these solo records and do this and and write these songs and now you're going to come back and make a bright eyes record which means you're with mike mogus and nate walcott and like the criticism in the pitchfork review is that like Connor Ober seems like receded a little bit or like, it's not just him. And I, I feel like, okay, well, if you're, if you're making solo records and and these other collaborative things, the one you make a bright eyes record should probably sound like you and the two other guys from bright eyes. And it feels <laughs> like that's kind of what they settled in and right. did. And I, I gotta be totally honest. I barely hear the lyrics on it. And that was true. Mm. That's true about digital action and digital learn as well for me. Like, Whereas I'm he- I'm hearing every syllable of of Lua, yeah, and I'm I'm there I'm in that scene you know, um, digital ash ones like I had to discover I don't know what it is just it's like okay this is cool and stimulating music but I need to I need to like actively hardcore concentrate to be following what they're talking about and that's yeah. becomes extra too when we're when we're talking about like uh science fiction and rastafarian stuff you know not, <laughs> right. not the most well-versed <laughs> and there's a lot of hitler popping up it's a yeah it's thematically a kind of opaque and dense i like I, th- I think a lot of songwriters write talk about like they get the melody or whatever in their heads and then they just like put down nonsense lyrics to kind of as placeholders and then they're going to fill in the meaningful stuff and there are places on this album where it feels like he stopped at the nonsense lyrics phase like i'm sure it meant a lot to him but like there isn't like the first lyrics of shell games which sounds just like people's key gobbledygook stuff actually a a reddit user blew my mind with so it do you know this no it's took the fireworks which is the cover of letting off the happiness of the fireworks and the vanity which is the mirror on the cover of fear and mirrors circuit board which is digital ash and the city streets which is um i'm wide awake bro um and then uh shooting stars swaying palm trees which is casadega oh my god and so he does his whole discography and then he's and laid it at the arbiter's feet took the fireworks and the vanity the circuit board and the city streets shooting stars swaying palm tree laid it at the arbiter's feet if I could change my mind, change the paradigm, prepare myself for another life, 
forgive myself for the many times I was cruel to something helpless and weak. But here I come, that heavy love. So, like, the first real song of the album, he's like doing his whole. So, I, I trust he's way smarter than me and better at lyrics. So, I know there's a lot in there, but I agree with you that it has this kind of. Uh, shellac of like impersonal weird symbolic systems that are hard to like get right away that is that is so cool that is yeah. that has never occurred to me me neither um, and and yeah well that's like a pretty the way we're describing this moment and what they are in like popular consciousness and what they are going forward and everything it's a pretty cool artful recap of what brought you to this this point yeah and he's it, always like he is the same age as my older brother. So I feel like this like slightly older brotherly relation to him always. Like I, when I was growing up, I just always had this sense, like whatever my older brother is into, it might look a little weird to me now, but in like two years, I'd be like, Oh yeah, that's what that was about. Like I'm now I, I get that. So I feel like I always have this kind of weird sense that Connor Oberst is like a couple of steps ahead of me <laughs> artistically or just and, and so it's fun to see with that kind of little lyrical thing which I didn't know until a couple of years ago that he was grappling with exactly the stuff we finally get around to thinking about yeah you mentioned shell games so like um shell games is a second song but for all intents like the kind of way bright eyes works i feel like the second song is often the kind of like bombing in like the real you're getting a real song kind of thing now right. and right i think that and jeju and stars every new day is a gift it's a song of redemption both of those songs are just like sonically very stimulating, energizing, and like release into really satisfying hooks. Like the on Jeju and Stars, the um, so I go umbrella under my arm, like melodic line is so just infectiously like a lot of what Casadega did was a sort of like, oh my god, is this song still plodding along right now? <laughs> Which a lot of this says more about my need for like some candy to like make yeah. me feel okay, you know, like <laughs> but those two songs give give that to me and and feel interesting and and then they're like that song also has like a cool little like kind of cure style boys don't cry guitar line like doing its notes in the background of it so I go Yeah, no, those are really joyful. Like, I was at a concert of his in like 2002. And this was like, when his, his image and the culture and mostly in my mind was just like, is he even going to be able to like get through the concert because he's in so much pain, like sitting there, like trembling on his stool with like tears in his eyes kind of thing. And so I went to the show and he started playing Loose Leaves, which is like a really joyful group. And I and a friend and I, my friend and I looked at each other and like, what the fuck is this? Like, we didn't know this like charismatic, energetic side of him, which of course you have to have. You can be like a rock star for decades. And so I feel like the, those first tracks on People's Key are very much out of that side of him, that they're really, and, and that out of that side of the group, that they're very, um, 
as you say, like joyful and hooky and energetic. And it's like, there's so many points on the album, like the last track that one for you, one for me, where like, I was trying to imagine if in the fevers and mirrors era, you'd been like, that guy is going to be like walking around a stage with just like the mic kind of like speak singing this like funky, it's just such a a different side of himself. And and I love that. One for the Fuhrer, one for his child bride. I think there's a feeling of to me like and this is on revisiting like i remember listening to it and liking shell games and liking the record enough as i slowly got to it but wherever i was in life i wasn't just like hanging on to it hard i think we also might have been like far enough removed from like maybe i didn't have a cd player anymore (laughs) i successfully skipped like paying 99 cents per song on itunes and streaming was kind of there but coming and i probably didn't have it yet and um like it honestly kind of might have existed in that little pocket of like I I kind of was like a little bit rudderless in terms of discovering listening to music anyways you know I know I was rudderless in other ways but <laughs> yeah yeah there was definitely a weird like post Napster pre Spotify window in there mm-hmm. before before jamming forward to some other songs do you have any feelings about the the intro track and the kind of interstitial the guy Danny Brewer. If you are into getting a Bright Eyes zine, some extra content, or if you just want to support the creation of this show, go to patreon.com slash after the deluge. It's just one $5 tier, super simple, easy. Thank you for the support. Yeah, I, I really like them, actually. So like, I. Um, I mean, the the intro song, like, I think I, I heard Connor Ober's joke at a concert once that that's like a song that no one likes, Firewall, that... Um, he played it and like maybe like two people clapped or something and he was like oh finally somebody or whatever but i kind of like it it's like very like hypnotic and loopy um but but the interstitial talking i i kind of love like i'm just fascinated with voices and 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 just that guy clearly has just like i mean physically like the actual sound of his voice yeah it's kind of cool but I just also really like what he's saying in kind of a loopy way. Like it obviously doesn't make a ton of linear sense talking about like lizard people and time travel and pomegranates and stuff. But, but there is some level if I kind of like let my mind go slack that I think what he's saying is like really beautiful and cool. And I, and I'm every time he shows up on the album, I'm kind of like, cool, especially the, the end. I, like we can talk about that when we get there, but like the very final thing, after the final song of him, I think is really like a beautiful piece of like sonic art. It's nicely placed. Yeah. And they got the little spots where every once in a while, one word kind of is doubled over and stuff like that. It, <laughs> I don't let this, because I, I really like them too. And I think I like, like, I like that those, those intro tracks exist broadly. And then some of them I like more than others. And this one, this one is kind of is what it is. His voice is interesting. You're hearing clean audio right away and you're just kind of <laughs> listening, right? And I had a thought that like, I'm not, 
I'm either going to try and purge this thought or I'm going to actually edit it in and uh, <laughs> do it. But I had this feeling of like him talking about like the reptilians and, and all of this stuff and then cutting in like Joe Rogan's voice going like, <laughs> holy shit, dude, this is what this is like, <laughs> because there's a word, there's a way you can spin it to like, this man has sure. unlocked the fucking truth and <laughs> no one else can understand it. And him and Rogan are doing three hours. And they had tails. They had a few reptilian features of them. They could phase shift from one dimension to another dimension. And the people who know say it's from the fourth dimension. It's the next dimension. Space is expanding. There's spirits coming from the center, right? We're going counterclockwise. There's supposed to be eight other universes going counterclockwise, and that's called super universe. You know, and love's always been the message. It just, circumstances happen, right? People freak out, just flat flip out, you know? Well, that's where Hitler came from. Hitler came from that way. He was an outspoken, charismatic yeller. And, he, and all these people say, hey, we use this guy. Look at all these people listening to this guy. You know what I mean? And so that's just one of the trips like that. You know, it still exists. And their bloodline goes back, back into Sumerian times. You know, they didn't call them reptilians, or they didn't call them, but they did because they called them Satan, they called them the devil. And it's the same damn trip. It's a negative force coming in on a positive force because it's a <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> no, I know that's, that's exactly, yeah, it can definitely like bleed into QAnon's yeah. stuff and maybe an uncomfortable way. But like, I just take it as like, you know, you've got a long wait at a bus station and just like the guy next to you starts talking and like kind of interesting if you sort of like turn something off in yourself. I'll take uh, listening to someone say interesting things for as long as they want to, regardless of how much sense they make than someone coherently making sense in a boring way i mean it's <laughs> yeah, like the, the exactly. stuff about the pomegranate it's like it yeah it's i'm a fan too yeah no there's something really beautiful about it and and, and especially with like the music you know lightly underneath it like it I, I think it's really well edited and called together and they let him go on like it, it really there are minutes of his talking i feel like throughout the album in the re-listening back like i haven't been inclined to to skip i listen to the man yeah no, me too <laughs> yeah. yeah so you get those kind of like two kind of songs that feel like real banger type songs to me and then i mean a, a beautiful thing bright eyes does is like on fevers and mirrors you get these songs that kind of do the same thing as those two to in their own fevers and mirrors type way and then you get like a sunrise sunset that feels a little more like two chords kind of going back and forth in a way that's not designed to be it's mood mood making you know above all yeah, else someone and, like losing their mind in a rocking chair kind of feel exactly. like just like sunrise sunset sunrise sunset swiftly go the days sunrise sunset you wake up then you undress it always the best albums always have that right you don't no one wants 10 10 verse chorus verse pop songs in a row or at least yeah, I don't. And this this record does a good job, I feel like, with like approximate sunlight and um, a few of these and even Halle Selassie. Am I saying it right? I Yeah, you're Halle Selassie. I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. Yeah, yeah. They they managed to be that and provide that in this record, but also be songs I, I still want to hear every time. I mean, it's really not a record where I skip songs. Pilgrim across the water 
for, I was when I went into re-listening to it for this, like I had the impression that there was kind of a mushy stretch of like a machine spiritual triple spiral beginner's mind. Like those weren't songs that like if they came on on like a general shuffle mix that I was usually like excited about. But actually listening to them in their context now, like I, I didn't want to skip any of them. Like I feel I feel like in the context of the album, each song has kind of a lot going for it. And Approximate Sunlight is, I think, a really interesting like gear shift down from those first right. two songs. And you get Denny Brewer talking after Jejun Stars, right? So then into Approximate Sunlight. And yeah, it feels like act one ending and now we're into another act. Used to dream of time machines Now it's been said we'll post everything As a child imagining Neckties and coastlines I seen the show, man What a sight Drenched us in approximated sunlight The crowd was small and mostly blind But kind, you're too kind Now you are feels nicely ordered and honestly like that's i don't need to like make it my whole deal to to like slag casadega but like (laughs) that's that's the one where like this song's probably serving its purpose in the larger vision of what's happening here and clearly it's thought out and done with a real like sheen to it but it's i don't want to hear it again and i I don't know how to describe that but i just don't for me casadega is maybe the only album in which those like professionalism versus sincerity faders started to creep into like dangerously professional territory. Like it, it feels a little over slick. Like it could have used some of the rough edges that I think do come like one of my favorite moments on this album, people's key is in triple spiral where he says something, father, son, and Holy ghost, the moment when I needed you and like everything in your being is waiting for him to say the most like it's just this rhyme that is hanging there. And instead he says, when I needed you, when I needed you, he just like repeats it. I love you, triple spiral, father, son, and ghost. But you left me in my darkest hour when I needed you, when I needed you. Now that the dream is over, I want it to be known. I never saw. That is like a three second moment that is like condenses a lot of what I love about Bright Eyes and about this album that just it has more feeling than you would think could be packed into those words or in them. And there is just this kind of really interesting lyrical like, you know, when you're like going up the stairs in the dark and you like stamp really hard on what you think is a stair, but it's actually the landing or whatever. Like there's a really weird feeling that he generates in you very quickly. It's, it's, it's almost like a joke, like a, has a little punchline of skipping that lyric. Um, and so that's a moment for me where I'm on this album, like, oh good, it's not overly slick. Like there's still some raw, personal, interesting decisions being made in here. It's like depriving you of the satisfying thing you you are anticipating in that moment um a thing i wasn't aware of around it and we'll come back to some songs in a minute but the i guess if i wasn't paying a ton of attention in that moment 
I wasn't aware that it was, it had like swirling conversation around it being a final bright eyes record. Like he doesn't say that definitively either, I think, but it seems like it's part of the conversation around it. Yeah. I remember a certain amount of um, finality as it it was coming. Like it, it seems weird given how rocky the decade since then has been. But I remember going into this album, it already felt like kind of a crisis album that like, I remember reading some article that he was like telling his friends throughout the making of it, that this was never going to happen. He was going to have to go get a straight job. Like this is just, and and there's a longer interval in the making of this album, I feel like than in most of his albums. So I I think there was definitely a sense that maybe the bright eyes project had been played out at this point, or he was tapped out or something was done was I feel like definitely in the air. And in fact, took nine years to get another album. And maybe that was the last one. And yeah, maybe I know that I know that they were signed for this one to make two records, but it's but then they've been making, but then they've been making this like the the re the reissued like covers version, which I don't remember at what point I've I've read too much too much bright eyes <laughs> things in the last six months or whatever, <laughs> but unsure. But it's possible that that thing satisfies the second record on that if oh. in in that deal not who knows but that would be a bummer yeah yeah i'm not necessarily one of these people who is like a purist for the magic that is when like conor obers mike mogus and nate are together like those are the only canonical albums and everything else like i'm pretty much here for conor obers and like i I like when the other stuff is around it but you know if he continues to make albums it won't be completely heartbreaking to me if there's never one put out under the bright eyes name I, they have a special something but like it doesn't seem to me of a different species than the rest of it i agree i agree with you on that you could argue that some of those solo records are more are some later solo records are closer to early bright eyes records than mm-hmm. this record is to you know like it yeah for sure and honestly i i agree with that too i will i think that some sort of sentimentality at the very beginning that connected me with bright eyes has me had me like it had some effect you know but but i thought about it as i went about making this project like well like it's a little bit arbitrary to a certain degree if a lot of this is built off this songwriter and this this person's songs and honestly the decision to make sure and to stay with bright eyes was out of a pure survival of like there's just too much other there's just too much no, other stuff to do you know yeah no you'd be like a python swallowing an alligator or whatever hold on tight beginner's mind the currents far too strong it will carry you along till you're just like everyone I don't think it's going to be one of those bands like the Rolling Stones or something where it's like you have to understand the chemistry and the interplay between these particular musicians. Like, I think this is going to be a guy who was amazing and surrounded himself with musicians who were able to translate that in a bunch of awesome ways. But like he is still, I think, very, very much the indispensable piece, clearly. I love your visual with the two dials, the professionalism and sincerity. 
he made those that collection of songs and clearly some people in a similar scene as him who were older decided to go about the process of helping him record more of them and up the up the fader on the professional side a little bit and basically like kind of help guide him along that way and then make the songs he wanted to make like I, I, there's some Connor Oberst quote that's like I don't know I would say with the sound I would hope to try to make and Mike Mogus would try to make it obviously yeah. that there, there's maybe less of a need for that now in that moment I mean I think that's like legitimately explains fevers and mirrors and lifted and digital yeah. ash and I'm wide awake it's morning to to its different kind of degree you know that's yeah cool. no that I think that's the same quote I'm thinking of where he in some interview or something said that like he will say something completely abstract or like he says I think like I want this to sound like ice breaking and Mike Mogus will be like, I know exactly what you mean. And like, go off and like create it on, you know, and, and I love that actually. I think that's such a cool, those are my favorite kind of people who can just like take anything in and translate it into something that is more what you were talking about than you knew. Yeah. And, and Connor Obers seems like he, he could use that. Like, I, I, like ruminations. Love it. I mean, ruminations is, I, I, it's, that is so sincere. It like breaks you almost. And it's just him alone I, I like that much more than salutations but it has but i think it's almost like mathematically you can see okay let's subtract the mic focus for everything else what what does this look like completely alone and like that's that's what it is just like songs that are in a way very similar but each one completely wrenching and just like almost an uncomfortable intimacy i think, I think it's a fascinating amazing album it seemed it seems like that one had had kind of a broad effect like that maybe like because I I was still not paying a ton of attention and I clung to that album and absolutely loved it too and it's come up multiple times in this series that and I think that probably is just a, a, a set of people on a down to just hear Connor Oberst play you some songs that he wrote you know let that be that and I think it also like kind of answers a complicated question that like hangs over the bright eyes project which is like you know your feelings are just way more intense when you're whatever 18 to 22 than they are when you're mid 30s 40s like i I don't have as intense an emotional experience of life as i did then and i think that's just normal and so when there's a new bright eyes record and this people's key is probably the first one fitting into that like more emotionally muted phase of my own life like, do I want it to like rip me open the way that like the young ones did? Like, is that what exactly are you looking for from as emotionally intense an artist? Like, how do you connect with a 40 year old who isn't like anguished with unrequited love for the girl who sits next to him in class or whatever, hopefully the way an 18 year old is. And I feel like ruminations is in a dark way, like kind of the answer to that. Like yeah. that makes 40 year old me feel as much as Beavers and Mirrors made 19 year old me feel. It's just a whole different set of feelings. I think that is what was so weird about the when we were young concert thing that he is not one of these artists who's just going to be like the same emo haircut above like an increasingly aging face. Like he's not going to replay his 18 year old feelings he's not going to pretend to be stuck in those and he's not actually going to be stuck in those like it's it, it is new you know he's singing about well, like brain aneurysms or something like it's it's completely different types of misery <laughs> in a way on that album and, and i think that's what's so cool about it yeah totally 
So ladder song, I think is a beautiful song. Ladder yeah. song into one for you and one for me. I think it's a really well, uh, we've, we've kind of been getting at this, but I think it's a really well sequenced record. Yeah, that ladder song into one for you, I think is maybe the best, my favorite like two song sequence on a Bright Eyes album. I, th- I think ladder song is for me is sort of um, poison oak or something. Like it's mm. it's just a very stripped down, painful. Like I was about to say that there were no like goosebump moments for me on this album. That it's mostly just like kind of pleasant. I mean, pleasant is kind of a shitty word, but it, it's mostly just fun. But ladder song actually is yeah, for yeah. me a goosebump song. It's really um, heartbreaking. No one knows where the ladder goes. You're gonna lose what you love the most. You're not alone in anything. You're not unique and dying. Feel estranged every now and then. Fall asleep reading signs. Fiction. I wanna fly in your silver ship. Let Jesus hang and Buddha sit. Yeah, the way it just like rides off into the sunset of one for you, one for me, I think is just perfect. I think yeah. that's such a great sequence. And Ladder Song, you talk about the sheen of like the previous record and where, where things were going. Ladder Song is like deliberately played on this not professional sounding piano, this kind of like a little bit old timey you're kind of un uneasy a little bit and it adds a lot to yeah. it. I feel like the like moment I kept hearing about on this tour, this latest tour of his was when people were like concerned was that he would not know the lyrics or the chords to ladder song that like Mike would have to come over and like position his hands correctly on the piano or whatever. And I feel like all like even in the proper recording of it, it feels a little bit like perilous. Is he going to get through this? Like it, mm-hmm. it just feels like yeah. an inherently very fragile, like one take kind of song. Welcome to New Age. one for me what's he talking about god what the fuck is it? i mean i know it ends on that like oh that so that's the one that's kind of like a plea for love right it's like a yeah. you know love will rule will um come out in the end but what i really like about the like the final seconds of it is he is fumbling for a word yeah like he says something like compassion or something and he's like no it's not that and and a voice who isn't his, I don't know if it's Conor Roberts or somebody else, it doesn't sound like Conor Roberts, says mercy, 
or you just hear them suggest something and then he says yeah mercy that's it i read it probably over read it as like sort of tying a bow around the whole album which you know from those shell games lyrics is a kind of like reckoning with his career thus far and like how do you make peace with it and move on and whatever and i think his answer which sounds kind of corny to say on a podcast is like a kind of mercy so enlightenment is knowledge as much knowledge as you can get people to, to seek and understand you know and it's mankind it's me it's me and you it's us that do it but we have to call it to a line we say look i'm not going to go kick that guy's ass that happened 10 years ago i wish him all the luck in the world that's love you know compassion or uh what do you call it mercy. what's that mercy mercy Like I kind of love, like just understand all of that music was sincere when it was made and has a lot of good stuff in it and just approach it with appreciation and love. And then there's, yeah, I mean, the like, you know, the philosophical stuff of this album, you know, one for you, one for me, like in a way, like a very cornily sincere plea for like a kind of, we're all one. It, it, it could almost be a cheesy sentiment, except I think it's so genuine that it works i think part of the reason a lot of this is these records are so relevant or so powerful is that they're taking one simple borderline cheesy but kind of universal and resonant thing and then unpacking it in a way that's unique and interesting you know like that's there's a reason some things are are like that you know and and just the example it's just the guy talking but like you wouldn't want to say like, oh, this song's about mercy. This is, we're talking about mercy. That's the message we have here. But if you have this guy right. who just got done talking and kind of meandering through the, all this stuff and then kind of fumbling around for a word and then someone says mercy and he says, oh yeah, mercy. And you get this like affected version of that. And then boom, you're out. The, the record's over. <laughs> you hang on that moment. You think on that for a yeah. minute, you know, you didn't know that it was about to be done and now you're done and this that's a it's not accidental it's so cool yeah no it's like a bell strike or something that just like hangs in the air after the record and 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 you're right i think that it the greatness of conor oberst in these records is that like simple borderline trite thing being made fresh because like of course it is trite stuff that is most deeply true and important at the end of the day like on on people's deathbeds they aren't like you know, God damn, like that really complicated thought I had was like the really important stuff. And just like, let me get out my notebook and my footnotes and stuff that it's, of course it boils. It is simple stuff like love and mercy. And and I, what I love so much about Conor Oberst is his willingness to be the guy who will risk seeming embarrassing or dumb or not dumb but just unsophisticated like i think it takes a genuine bravery to not only wear your hurt so plainly but just like wear your joy so plainly and his answers for things are often like like there's a moment on um, one of his solo records where he's like love is the answer full stop and just yeah it is (laughs) yeah i know you have i mean you have lifted all about a thing about like friends coming together to get you out like that could easily be absolutely cheesy and then like you're a you're a fiction writer you're a creative imaginative person fevers and mirrors and clocks and scales like people have abused these things as uh 
symbols in writing a lot. You could easily land there. You know, I said it on that episode, but like, like it's not like some James Joyce thing where you have to like pour over his lyrics and find all of the complicated references for the most part. Like there is some of that, I guess, on people's key, but for the most part, it's pretty straightforward, but there's genuine, clever, fresh ways of approaching this material, like mirrors and clocks and whatever it is that, that yeah, would just be deathly in the hands of the typical, like, you know, teenage poet or whatever. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah he's, he's got a real gift. As uh, All right. So you, you're a novelist and you've listened to this music over a long period of time. Um, sh- surely you have your influences from that world that you work in. Yeah. Is, has this influenced you? Well, I, yeah. I mean, my third novel is called At the Bottom of Everything, which is, nice. um, which was like, it has nothing to do with Bright Eyes or Connor Oberst or anything, but um, th- there's a scene in it that involves like a, people being stuck in a cave in India. And like, I, I had to come up with a title because it, like the publication date was approaching. And I was just sitting there like down in the bottom like what the and the, it's like at the bottom of everything that sounds kind of go oh, fuck like it's nice. it's like like it's this like pre-existing phrase that feels like carved out so that was definitely the biggest moment of right eyes explicitly influencing my writing but it, I, I do feel like actually it, it's not i remember a moment of listening to um i was struggling with one of my books and listening to lifted um, I think it was nothing gets crossed out or something. And just something about the like purity of the project, like having the sense that they would be making this music if there were a meteor headed toward earth. Like there's just something about art for art's sake that is like joyful and cathartic. And, you know, that whole, like, I feel better when I sing yeah. side of the project that is that has been really, really useful to me as a writer like just trying to get back in touch with like I, I, I am there's a on YouTube there's a song I don't know if there still is but there once was a song that Connor Oberst wrote when he was like 12 or 13 I want to say called like Space Invaders or something mm-hmm. it's it's like about a video game but it's like very good it, it somehow turns the game into something kind of rich and awesome and it's a good song and his voice has not changed yet so it's, it's like hilarious but amazing because you see this like absolutely germinal thing that is every that, that would grow into this giant career i know what you're thinking or at least i think i do what's on my mind isn't half of what's on yours and i turn to you quaking and i'm wrapped in your old man coat like a present or broken in leather shoe and buried in that warmness i can't even remember my fears is it obvious to you yet that you hold me up is it obvious to you yet that you keep me
so I feel like that's a very, for me, when I'm lost in writing, to try to get back in touch with like fifth grade Ben, who is alone at his Apple IIe and just like typing for the joy of it and just like the pleasure of making up stories. Like that thing is sort of imperishable and it is the kind of um, like little nuclear reactor at the center of your artistic life if you can kind of keep it alive. And I feel like he's such a great example of that. That's beautiful. And I also hope I can find that song. I'm going to go. <laughs> it's, it's it's really great and funny. It's it's awesome. <laughs> Should have been episode one. And I'll look around, but no, the the spirit of what you're saying is so lot. I mean, there's been a lot of conversation on this podcast about just just doing things, just making them, whether it's music or whether it's things in your life. Um, silence the editor for a minute and just go, just find find some flow. You know. Yeah. It's funny you talk about the titling thing. I was I had this horrible insurance transcription job right after college. And then I ran into a newspaper editor from my hometown and she's, and I wrote a couple like unpaid columns for them. And she's like, we want, you should do more of these. Like, let's have you do them. And and I was kind of getting into writing then. I mean, I was writing, but I was getting into like what I would eventually go and do in journalism and stuff. And she's like, let's get a name for your, for your column. We need a name for it. And I was at, this is probably, I mean, I'm, I'm listening to a lot of Bridas at this time. And I remember saying that I wanted to name it Buried Under the Influence, which is like a, a from Let's Not Shit Ourselves. Like it's a, it's a mm. tossed off oh, yeah, line yeah. and Let's Not Shit Ourselves. <laughs> and she just wrote back like, it sounds like you're on drugs or dying <laughs> or no, they're not going to do that. <laughs> We're not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was kind of amazed actually that my editor let me title the book that um but I was, yeah, I was very pleased to discover that a you cannot copyright titles, so it was like not a problem. Wow! But also that I, I just in the sense in the like Danny Brewer sense that like, you know, syllables are frequencies. I think there's something about the arrangement of syllables about the bottom of everything that just like sounds cool. That my editor, who I'm certain had never heard a second of Bright Eyes, is like, cool. huh, that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's really that's great. Yeah, no, yeah. there's this there's this movie everyone's arguing about right now on on. Netflix Glass Onion. That's just a Beatles song, right? The movie has nothing to do with that. Oh, is that where that comes from? That's just the title of a Beatles song. Yeah. 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 It's pure music. That's it. Sweet. Um, well, where can people find you or anything anything we've missed before we kinda kinda No, I feel like down? this feels like a cathartic airing of, of every bright eyes related thought I've ever had. No, this feels good. I love it. Were you I, I should have clicked on your name on there, but were you writing for the all AWL um often then? That was like a I was in an early like understanding where to write on the internet and kind of figuring things out. And I remember this period of time thinking like this is like the best version of someone trying to do things slightly different or askew. I just remember feeling like that was a really great version of the internet. I, not yeah. everything on there was for me. There was a lot of things yeah. on there that were beyond me, but that was kind of the point, you know, the, the point yeah. was this one's going to be very much for me. Yeah. It, it, there was a certain freedom to it. I'm sure it paid very little and everything, but just was great. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember if it paid at all. Probably not. Yeah. Some of them, but no, that was a very like important place for me to like first begin to find myself as an essayist like i would have an idea for something like this that i mean you know good luck trying to convince like gq or something that they should run 1100 <laughs> words of your random feelings about bright eyes and yet this wasn't just like live journal where it was just like so much people just 
uh, venting their unedited thoughts that it was just like not even worth reading. Like this was, it, it, yeah, they really got the balance right. This, the editor, whose name I'm almost certainly going to mispronounce, Corey Sika, oh, yeah. was like a, just a really generous, amazing helper of young talent. Um, so that yeah, that was a really really important place for me that I was writing a bunch at that point. Yeah, that's the best. That was that was a little added extra thing when I when I got this article from you. It was like, oh wow, that's like that's not only about this record that came out in 2010 or 2011. That's like a site I would go to, type into my uh, <laughs> search bar on my web browser daily at that time in my life. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When that died, it was really like at the official end of an era for sure. Sort of like, yeah, this is dead. This is sad. Of course it's dead. Everything like this dies. That's just the way yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, no, it was too good to live. Well, where can where can people find you and anything you're doing? Or what do you have? If you, if you um, like to... I, I do have a website, which is just my name, bentonlick.com. I have like a mercifully or or maybe unwisely like non-existent social media persona. So just like, yeah, sometimes I have essays come out. And even less frequently than that, I have books come out. So yeah, I, oh, I do have a newsletter. Where I, I have a newsletter called One Sentence on Substack, where I write about um, my favorite sentences from books. Um, so that exists. Beautiful. That's great. That is very good. Well, I very much enjoyed this. Thank you for coming on it, and it's been cool just connecting with you generally. Yeah, it's been awesome. Thank you so much. I'm sorry if it's scary for me to depend on you. I don't mean a burden at all I decided in the silence that I can't do this alone I need safety and I hope that you're not pissed off and I'm selfish and knowing to ask this of you Yes, 